prominent Christian televangelical preacher, Pat Robertson, is dead. Pat Robertson was known for his outspoken stance on Israel. He was an evangelical Zionist who believed, like all evangelicals, that the Jews must be assembled in their lands, the Holy Land, having a state of Israel, before their Messiah comes to either kill or convert all the Jews to Christianity. There's a difference of opinion between the evangelicals. I'm not sure which one uh, Pat Robertson believed, but it was certainly one of the two. He also believed that the Jews are obsessed with money. He made comments like, uh, Jews are more likely to polish their diamonds on the weekend rather than wash their cars, and things like that. He was no friend of the Jews, Pat Robertson, nor are any of the evangelicals. The only reason why they support Israel is in order to facilitate the either conversion or death of all the Jews when the end of days comes. But, of course, because he was a Zionist, Zionists love him. APAC tweeted today, quote, APAC mourns the passing of Pat Robertson, who was a great friend of Israel and a pioneer in the modern Christian Zionist movement. The modern Christian Zionist movement, again, believes that one day the Jews will either all convert to Christianity or be killed after they are assembled in the Holy Land. But Zionists love them because Zionists don't care about a person's attitude towards Jews. They care only about a person's attitude towards Israel. And the attitude of the evangelicals towards Israel is give them money, support them, and that's all Zionists care about. That's no secret. But as long as we're talking about the evangelicals, there is a secret that many people aren't aware of. It's one of the dirty Zionist secrets that Zionists try to erase from history. And that is that much of Zionist ideology, the core beliefs of Zionism, comes not from Judaism, but from evangelical Christianity. Yes, it's not that the evangelicals saw Jewish Zionism and then said they agree with it. It's the opposite. Christian Zionism was in existence centuries before any Jew ever thought of Zionism. They had already developed a robust ideology claiming that the Holy Land is a Jewish homeland, claiming that the Jews must retake Palestine and make it into a state, and that they should speak Hebrew there so that they'll be assembled when their Messiah comes and does whatever he's supposed to do. According to Judaism, the Holy Land is not the Jewish homeland. Homeland is wherever we choose to live currently. And in modern Hebrew, in Zionist language, homeland, which they refer to with the Hebrew word moledes, is the place where the nation was born. And indeed, according to Zionist ideology, and it's straight away open and clear in their Declaration of Independence, they believe that the Holy Land is the place where the Jewish people was born, as a people, and that there's an intrinsic connection, some type of organic connection between people, a people, and the place that people was born. Of course, this is alien to Judaism. There's no such concept. In fact, the whole concept was a product of nationalism, not Judaism. The Jews always referred to the Holy Land as the Holy Land, never as homeland. And the reason is because the Jewish people was born, according to Judaism, at Mount Sinai. As the Bible says, Hayoim Hazen Niyesa Today, 
meaning the day you accepted the Torah from God on Mount Sinai, we became a people. But that's not the Christian evangelical belief. The Christian evangelical belief is that there's a homeland of the Jewish people, and that's the land of Israel, and that it's appropriate for the Jews to assemble there, have sovereignty over it, and there speak Hebrew. And that's just one small example. There are many examples of things that we attribute to Jewish Zionists. Uh, We assume it's part of Zionist ideology, but it really comes from the evangelicals. So much of Zionism is just evangelical ideology, and I'm going to today go over the history and the ideology of Christian Zionism and its influence on the Jews. It was the evangelicals that tied the existence of Israel to the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, as the the Christians call it, because in Judaism, no Jewish authority ever has done such a thing. The idea that there's a connection between religion and the state of Israel was the idea of the evangelicals. In the year 2010, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, visited the site of the Auschwitz concentration camp. There he made a moving speech where, amongst other things, he gave us a piece of what he seemed to say was his own biblical exegesis. He quoted the prophecy in the book of Yechezkel, Ezekiel, chapter 37, where there God tells the prophet to go to a certain valley where he prophesizes and witnesses the resurrection of the dead and quote-unquote dry bones grow flesh and come back to life. The Navi then prophesizes regarding the exile of the Jewish people during which the Jews are compared to dry bones. Or according to another interpretation, it refers to the uh, resurrection of the dead which will take place at the time of the Messiah. But said Netanyahu that this prophecy refers to something entirely different. It refers to the state of Israel. Quote, The Jewish people rose from ashes and destruction, armed with the Jewish spirit, the justice of man, and the vision of the prophets. Dry bones became covered with flesh. A spirit filled them, and they lived on, stood on their own feet. As the prophet Yechezkel prophesied, And then Netanyahu went on to quote chapter 37 in the book of Yechezkel. Now, never mind that Netanyahu talks about the Jewish people rising with the Jewish, armed with the Jewish spirit, the justice of man and the vision of the prophets. Never mind that he left out the Jewish religion or God or the help of God, because that's expected from Zionists. But what was not expected from Zionists like Netanyahu was to engage in biblical exegesis. I found it odd that he would do something like that. Netanyahu doesn't know anything about the Bible and certainly not about its interpretation. So it was odd. And especially this very strange interpretation that it's very creative, but absolutely uh, counter to thousands of years of Jewish interpretation. The Jews never looked at the prophecy of Yechezkel in that way. Where would he get such a thing? And who was he trying to impress? So I did some research, and I found out where he got it and who, indeed, he's trying to impress. Netanyahu was promoting the evangelical Christian interpretation of that chapter over the Jewish one, because although the Jews never interpreted the prophecy of Yechezkel that way, the Christian evangelicals did. 
for a very long time. In the year 1864, yes, 1864, decades before Herzl published his book, The Jewish State, the Reverend Charles Haddon Spurgeon, at something called the Metropolitan Tabernacle for British Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst Jews. Let me repeat that. The Propagation of the Gospel Amongst Jews. This is a missionary thing. The evangelical preacher quoted this chapter in the book of Yecheskel, and he concludes, The meaning of our text opened up by the context is most evident if words mean anything that first there will be a political restoration of the Jews to their own land and to their own nationality. There's to be a national restoration of the Jews. Israel is currently blotted out from the map of the nations. Her sons scattered far and wide. Her daughters mourn besides all the rivers of the earth. But she is to be restored. She is to be restored as from the dead. She is to be reorganized. Her scattered bones are to be brought together. There will be a native government again. There will again be the form of a body politic. A state will be incorporated and a king shall reign. I will place you in your own land, is God's God's promise to them. They will walk upon her mountains, will sit under her vines. If there be meaning in words, this must be the meaning of this chapter. If there is anything clear and plain, the literal sense and meaning of this passage, a meaning not to be spirited or spiritualized away, must be evident that both the two and the ten tribes of Israel are to be restored to their own land and that a king is to rule over them. I guess Bibi likes this prophecy because, you know, they call him King Bibi. Anyway, this idea that the Jews are a nationality was not invented by the Zionists, but by the Christians. And the perception of Eretz Yisrael, the Holy Land, as the birthright or national homeland of the Jewish people first appears, not in Jewish sources, but in Protestant sources, in evangelical sources, It was always a basic tenet of Protestant fundamentalism and was a major factor in the non-Jew support of the Zionist efforts to create the state of Israel to begin with. In fact, the Christians were agitating for the Jews to quote-unquote return to their so-called homeland of Eretz Yisrael way before Zionists ever thought of the idea. Spurgeon's speech in the tabernacle for the propagation of the gospel amongst Jews was far from the debut of this idea. It was already an established principle in these Christian circles. Spurgeon's creativity was merely to interpret the prophecy of Yecheskel according to the Christian idea of the future Jewish state. And there are Jewish Zionists who were always have been more than happy to present the Holy Land in a Christian light, thereby gaining the support of a large and powerful Gentile force for their Zionist aspirations. Pat Robertson used to talk about, and it's quoted in the Jewish Telegraphic Agency's article about him today, how the return of the Jewish people to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a real miracle. Now, the truth is, if Herzl and the Jews would have had to do it on their own, then we could talk about it being a miracle. But this was no miracle. The return of the Jews, the establishment of the state of Israel, I should rather say, because it's not the Jews that returned, it's the Zionists, in 1948 was no miracle at all. In fact, it had massive support from a very large and powerful, very large and very powerful 
constituency of evangelical Christians. It was the evangelical Christians that caused the creation of the state of Israel, not the Jews. But let's take a step back and start with the history. As early as 1585, a man by the name of Reverend Francis Kett, a Christian from Cambridge, published a book called, get ready, it's a long title, The Glorious and Beautiful Garland of Man's Glorification Containing the Godly Mystery of Heavenly Jerusalem. In this book, he discusses the Jewish national return to Palestine. This was in 1585. In 1609, an English priest by the name of Thomas Brightman wrote a pamphlet called Apocalypsis Apocalypsos, describing the process of the Jews' so-called return to the Holy Land and their conversion subsequent to their return. In it, in this book, he called for creating a Jewish state in Palestine in order for the prophecies of his religion to be fulfilled. He said, only if this happens would England be blessed by their God. He also, by the way, predicted the conversion of all Jews to Christianity in the year 1650. The first Zionist was neither Emma Lazarus nor Theodore Herzl. These guys, Brightman and Kett, lived a few centuries before either of them. As time went by, the Christian Zionist movement gains momentum. At the beginning of the 1600s, belief in a future conversion of the Jews was commonplace amongst English Puritans, and a large number of them taught that there was going to be a restoration of the Jews to the Holy Land in the Near East, either after or the same time as their conversion to Christianity. In 1621, a member of the British Parliament, a Sir Henry Finch, published a book whose title is too long for me to say here, World's Res- it starts off The World's Resurrection or The Calling of the Jews, and it goes on for a few lines. That's just the title. In this book, he called for the Jews to invoke their rightful claims to the Promised Land, reestablish themselves there, and convert to Christianity. 1649, Joanna Cartwright and her son Ebenezer, English Puritan Christians who lived in Holland petitioned the English Parliament of Oliver Cromwell to allow Jews into England. Jews weren't allowed in England. They were expelled by King Edward in the 1200s, and they were prohibited to return. But they petitioned the Parliament of Oliver Cromwell to allow them to return so that England, with the help of Holland, could then transport the Jews to Palestine, where they needed to be, according to this Christian uh, evangelical belief. All throughout the 1600s, there were books printed by Protestant clergymen and religious activists calling for and predicting the Jews returning to the Holy Land as a nation. At the same time, over in the British colonies in America, uh, many clergy were preaching about the Christian belief of the restoration of the Jews to the Holy Land and their associated conversion to Christianity. From that time on, The doctrine of restoration, as it was called, may well be said to have become endemic to American culture. In 1771, uh, a minister of the Church of England published a book called Observations Upon the Prophecies Relating to the Restoration of the Jews. In this book, he reiterates that according to Christianity, the Jews are going to return to Palestine, and he claims that according to Christianity, the entire Jewish nation will return to their rightful land from their diaspora, that land that was promised to Abraham, which according to Christianity belongs to the Jews unconditionally. A few years later, a 
Church of England minister, published another book where he makes sure to point out that according to Christianity, the return of the Jews to the Holy Land will be a national return, not one of individual Jews. Around the same time, Richard Beer, yet another minister in the same Christian movement in England, published a book where he called upon the Jewish people to get on with their national reestablishment in the Holy Land. He calculated this uh, man, his name was Richard Beer, that the restoration of the Jews to the Holy Land would take place in 1791. He advised the British Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger in a letter he wrote to him a year earlier that he should keep the British Navy at its full power in order for England to be better equipped to expedite the prophecies of the Jews returning to the Holy Land. Around the same time, Baptist minister James Bishino published a book called The Sign of the Times, in which he predicted the imminent overthrow of the Pope and the ingathering of the Jews from their exile in preparation for their conversion. During this time, uh, in Christian sermons, religious books, studies in prophecy, scriptural exegesis, and in the polemical literature over the controversy over deism and various different religious forums, the idea of the restoration of the Jews appeared frequently. It was very, very well known. But it was only after the rise of nationalism that this Protestant Christian idea gains most of its momentum. After the American and French revolutions, at the end of the 1700s, the British, like many other Europeans, felt that the world was in the middle of a great upheaval. In such traumatic times, people tend to turn to their religions as kind of a security blanket to seek stability in a world that they consider unstable. The shocking destabilization of European society and the resulting fear of the unknown that engulfed so many citizens caused them to read into their religious texts what they wanted to see, which was, in those days, predictions of the disruption of society social upheavals, and the undermining of long-held beliefs and authority. The Puritan rendition of Christianity, which heralded great cataclysmic events and Armageddon and the final judgment of the world, was a perfect fit for so many Christians in Britain and even elsewhere. It's no surprise, therefore, that we find Christians who interpreted Napoleon's wars and the Chaos that was overtaking society then in light of their religious prophecies predicting the end of the world as we know it, starting with the Jews' return as a nation to the Holy Land. In fact, the Napoleon's adventures in the Near East was the greatest boost to the hopes of these Christians. His conquest of Egypt in 1798, the capture of Yafo and Bo at the in 1799, and his appeal to the Jews of Africa and Asia to join him in marching against Syria and restoring the kingdom of Jerusalem, this revolutionary force that toppled the French Episcopal hierarchy and humbled the Pope in his own territory, was now doing battle with the Turks in the Holy Land itself, in preparation, it seemed, to restoring the Jews to their own territory. Napoleon and his adventures had a great, tremendous influence on the success of this belief, this Christian-Protestant belief of the Jews returning as a nation to their holy land. After all, Napoleon basically conquered Europe, offered to restore the kingdom of the Jews, and he also humbled the Pope in his own territory. The Protestants, by the way, don't 
believe in the Pope. So all of these things put together just showed these uh, Christians that from heaven there are signs that the Jews are coming back to their Holy Land to be restored. Now, by the way, the Jews had no interest in Napoleon's offer. The religious Jews knew that they belong in exile all over the world and that their return to the Holy Land when the Messiah comes uh, bears no resemblance to what Napoleon offered them. And the non-religious Jews, the assimilated Jews of Germany and Western Europe at the time, had no interest in abandoning their plans to be assimilated Jews in European society. So, at the end of the 1700s already, there was an already established and increasingly popular Christian belief, mostly centered in England, but already centuries old, that the Jews were destined to be liberated from their exile and restored to the Holy Land. And there was also a movement to actually bring that about with the help of the British or perhaps some other government. And all of this before Gretz or Hess or Pinsker or Herzl were even born. The Christian Zionist movement continued to expand its power base and increase its influence among the ruling powers in England. The early and mid-1800s saw increasingly more Christian Zionist activity in the attempts to both liberate the Jews from their exile and reestablish them in Palestine, as well as to convert them to Christianity. In 1809, the London Society for Promoting Christianity Amongst the Jews, uh, which was also known as, in short, as the London Jews Society, was founded. It was an interdenominational society whose main aim was to convert the Jews to Protestant Christianity. The society changed its name several times since, since its inception, and today it still exists, but it's known as the Church's Ministry Among Jewish People, and it's one of the 11 official missionary agencies of the Church of England, and it's international. This organization has branches in UK, Israel, Ireland, US, Canada, South Africa, Hong Kong, and Australia. It is not only the precursor of Zionism, but also the initiator of what's now the so-called Messianic Jewish movement. These Messianic Jews consider themselves Jews and not Christians. They don't believe in most of the Torah, and they believe Jesus is the Messiah. And it's no secret, you could look up their Wikipedia article. It says that this group, quote, expressed the view that the Jewish people deserve a state in the Holy Lands decades before Zionism began as a movement. In 1830, the British-born John Thomas, who was then living in Brooklyn, New York, founded uh, yet another Christian sect called the Christadelphians. Uh, he wrote a book called Hope of Israel. In it, he suggested that the Jewish nation could successfully be reconstituted in its so-called ancestral homeland through the political assistance of England. 1839, the Church of Scotland itself published a memorandum to the Protestant monarchs of Europe for the restoration of the Jews to Palestine. As time went by, these Christian evangelicals didn't just write, okay, this is what we need to do for the Jews. They didn't just lobby governments to do so. They actually created a whole ideology and a whole system of propaganda to get the state of Israel founded. The British Anglican Lord Shaftesbury had a particularly influential role in the development of Zionism in Britain. He, more than anybody else, is responsible not only for pushing the idea of the creation of the State of Israel, but he was successful in actually 
getting Christian Zionism to become the official political policy of England. He convinced Lord Palmerston and later uh, Prime Minister of England of the benefits, both Christian and political, of Zionism. He also coined a phrase, you may have heard it. He said that Palestine for the Jews is, quote, a country without a people for a people without a country. That slogan, which everybody thinks was invented by Jewish Zionists, was actually created by the evangelicals. It was also used by the Christian minister, the Scottish Alexander Keith, in 1844 in a book called The Land of Israel According to the Covenant of Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. Uh, This uh, slogan is usually attributed to Israel Zangville, who said it in a 1901 article in the New Liberal Review, but he didn't attribute it to its real sources. You see, the Jewish Zionists want people to think that Zionism is Jewish. So he kind of plagiarized this slogan, and he didn't say that it was really well-known amongst the Christians. Zangville, however, actually changed his mind about that. He realized that the land was populated by Arabs, and he regretted saying it, switching his position in favor of the Uganda plan. In 1908, Zangville admitted to a London court that his 1901 statement was, quote, naive, end quote, and has since realized that the density of the Arab population in Palestine is about twice that of the United States. In any case, this is the origin of the saying. Mahmoud Abbas, uh, I remember, maybe it was a couple of years ago, he quoted this in the name of Theodore Herzl. He thought Herzl invented it. Herzl was not the one that invented it. Even amongst the Jews, it was Zangville. But it wasn't the Jews at all. It was the Christians. In 1851, the Italian politician Benedetto Mussolino wrote a book in which he called for a Jewish municipality in the Holy Land under the sovereignty of Turkey, where the national religion would be Judaism and the national language would be Hebrew, by the way. Theodor Herzl had no interest in the Jews speaking Hebrew in the Jewish state. He said it wasn't practical and it wasn't necessary either. The first people to have the idea that the Jews in a national state in the Holy Land would be speaking Hebrew was the evangelicals. In 1875, British General Charles Warren published a book in which he suggested that Palestine be developed with, quote, the avowed intention of gradually introducing the Jews, pure and simple, who would eventually occupy and govern the country, end quote. Uh, Around that time, the Jews were already involved in creating Jewish communities in the Holy Land, no interest in creating a state, but colonies or communities were there, which lived peacefully with the Arabs and had no aspirations to create a state. This purely religious undertaking, which had nothing to do with politics or nationalism or any type of statehood, was good news for the restorationist Christians, that's what uh, we call them, as they saw the beginnings of their Christian prophecies coming true. Kind of the beginning of the redemption, what the Jewish Zionists call Aschalta de Gula, the Christian Zionists saw when the colonies started. And therefore... Contrary to common belief, not widely well known, the Christian evangelicals helped the Jewish people move to the Holy Land even before there was an idea to create a state of Israel. Colonel George Gorler in the 1800s, a a senior commander at the Battle of Waterloo, worked together with Moses Montefiore to create agricultural settlements in the Holy Land. 
the Montefiore Quarter of Tel Aviv is an example of their joint efforts. Another influential Christian Zionist activist was the British Major Charles Henry Churchill. He was a cousin of Winston Churchill, who in 1841, at a dinner hosted in Syria, gave a rousing speech announcing that the hour of Israel's deliverance was near at hand, when the Jewish nation would, quote, once more claim her rank among the powers of the world, and that the descendants of the Maccabees will yet prove themselves worthy of their illustrious ancestors. The audience in response shouted, Inshallah! By the way, this idea of the ancestors of the Maccabees was also lifted by the Jewish Zionists on the last page of Herzl's book, The Jewish State. He talks about how the descendants of the Maccabees will rise again. This idea of portraying the Jews as descendants of the Maccabees, that too uh, originated with the evangelicals. For centuries, while the Christian restorationists were preaching that the Jews have a perpetual right to the Holy Land and they should return there as a nation in its national homeland, there were as yet no Zionist verses heard among the Jews who followed the Torah's view that the Jewish people are religion and not a nation, and that Eretz Yisrael, the Holy Land, is not their homeland, but a holy land that pious people come to for the purpose of serving God, sovereignty over which was given to us once upon a time on the condition that we use it properly and subsequently withdrawn from us for that reason. And finally, that the Jewish people are resigned to serving Hashem all over the world until the Messiah arrives. As Academic Adam Garfinkel, after describing the flurry of active Christian Zionist encouragement for the Jews to return to the Holy Land, notes, quote, Many Jews knew of all of this and read these books, meaning the books published by the Christian evangelicals. Surely they were moved by them to action. Yes? No, they were not. Zionist sentiment among the Jews of Europe had not yet emerged in a modern political form. It existed only in the old religious form, that of the prayer book, which implied that no action need be taken on behalf of any cause or movement. The writings of the earliest pre-Herzlian Zionists, Moses Hess, Leo Pinsker, and others, were still decades in the future, when Shaftesbury was a young man. So it's fair to say that the dispensationalist Christians, meaning the evangelicals, became political Zionists before many, perhaps any, European Jews did. Even Naftali Hertz Imber, who wrote the lyrics to Hatikva, Israel's national anthem, seems to have been inspired by the man to whom he was travel secretary, Lawrence Oliphant. End quote. That's in his book called Jew Centricity, Why the Jews Are Blamed, Praised, and Used to Explain Just About Everything. Religious Jews had absolutely no interest in Zionism, in creating a Jewish state, in the idea that the Jews are a nationality because they're not. It was looked at as heretical. They had no interest in creating a Jewish state. They had no interest in the being helped by the evangelicals or even encouraging them in their activities. Now, getting back to Spurgeon and his speech that Netanyahu plagiarized, uh, around the time Spurgeon gave his sermon, the first substantial sounds of Jews talking in Nationalist terms began to be heard. There was no politically active Jewish Zionist movement yet at that time. Herzl was still in diapers. But the new Jewish Zionism, a restoration movement but without any religious belief, 
It was like evangelical Christianity, but without a God, was born around then. In 1862, Moses Hess published Roman Jerusalem, and in 1882, Leo Pinsker printed Auto-Emancipation. These were the first Zionist books that were printed before Herzl. The Christian Zionists, uh, for their part, were more than happy to recruit anyone who would join them in their scheme to restore the Holy Land to the Jews. And so, in 1887, shortly after the outbreak of the Russian pogroms, American Christian Zionist William Blackstone, author of a book that insisted the Jews have a biblical right to Palestine called Jesus is Coming, sent a petition with over 400 signatures, mostly Christian but also some Jewish, to President Benjamin Harrison, lobbying for the United States to work together with the European countries to return Palestine to the Jews. In this petition, Blackstone used the argument that the Jewish refugees from persecution, which comprised about 2 million Russian Jews, had nowhere to go, and the only viable solution to their plight was a Jewish state in Palestine. So again, the idea that a Jewish state, a so-called Jewish state, is necessary as a safe haven for Jews also didn't come from the Jews. It came from the evangelicals and way before World War II, had nothing to do with the Holocaust. By in the Russian pogroms in the 1800s, there were two million Jewish refugees, and the Christian Zionists, the evangelicals, said, well, they need a Jewish state because they have nowhere to go. Anyway, despite Blackstone's claims, the Russian Jews did find places to go other than a Jewish state. But the Zionists would ultimately use Blackstone's strategy again after the Holocaust, claiming once more that the survivors had nowhere to go and the only solution was a Jewish state. However, as we know, the Zionists then made sure that the Jews would not have anywhere else to go by discouraging and sometimes even sabotaging rescue routes for the Jews, something that these Christian evangelicals never had the cruelty to think of. There's actually a new book about this um, by Tony Greenstein. It's called Zionism During the Holocaust, The Weaponization of Memory in the Service of State and Nation. But there are plenty of other books, and this is about this, and this is a well-documented fact. The Zionists made sure, to the best of their ability, that the Jews would have nowhere else to go, because if they did, there would, A, be less of a case to argue for a Jewish state after the war, and B, there would be less of a need and demand for it. In any case, by the mid to late 1800s, there was already a significant, organized Christian effort to settle the Jews in the Holy Land and to convert them. And their success was becoming more likely because towards the end of the 1800s, the Holy Lands became more and more under British control. In 1895, Benjamin Disraeli, the British Prime Minister, bought controlling interests in the Suez Canal. Two years later, the British gained control of Cyprus from Turkey. And as Britain got more and more control of areas around the Holy Land and in it itself, the expectations were that Britain would seek to rebuild the Holy Land. So many of the arguments later used by Zionists to support the establishment of a Jewish state were first thought of and used by the Christians. One, the argument that Jewish refugees after the Holocaust have nowhere to go except Palestine was used by the Christians after the Russian pogroms. Two, the argument that the Jews in Europe are going to be slaughtered and therefore need a safe haven in Palestine was published by the German Christian C.F. Zimpel, who argued this in pamphlets that he published in the mid-1800s, titled uh, 
Israelites in Jerusalem and appeal to all Christendom as well as for Jews for the liberation of Jerusalem. That's the title of it. He addressed a number of geographical issues and warned that if the Jews are not allowed to return to Palestine, it would lead to their persecution and slaughter. The idea that a Jewish state in Palestine would allow Egyptian culture into the Middle East, also something heard by people that support Zionism, was already made in 1851 by Mussolino that we mentioned before. This Mussolino also suggested that the national language of the Jewish state would be Hebrew. And as we saw the slogan of a land without a people for people without a land that most people think belongs to Israel Zangville and is today common amongst the Zionists, um, was first used by the Christians such as Lord Shaftesbury and Alexander Keith in the 1840s before any Zionist ever thought of it. Now, not only do the Christian Zionists invent uh, what we think is Jewish Zionism, they also actually facilitated it through the Jewish Zionists. Theodore Herzl's activities were sponsored and supported by Reverend William Heckler, a Protestant pastor whose father did missionary work in Germany trying to convert Jews to Christianity. He was the personal tutor of Prince Ludwig, the son of the Grand Duke of Baden in Germany, and the uncle of the future Kaiser of Germany, William II. He was also a fervent Christian Zionist. In 1884, he published a book called The Restoration of the Jews to Palestine According to Prophecy. They have long titles, these evangelicals, in which he called for the Jews to return to Palestine as a prerequisite for the coming of the Christian Messiah. He held that conversion to Christianity was not a prerequisite to the coming of the Messiah, and he also held, based on complex calculations of scriptural interpretation, that in 1897 or 1898, the Jews would be returned to Palestine. Heckler saw a miracle. Although the Jews did not create a Jewish state during those years, but miraculously, Heckler said, in 1896, that is the year Herzl published his book, The Jewish State, which, according to Heckler, was a clear fulfillment of the Christian prophecy. Heckler thereupon sought out Herzl to inform him of this miracle. Herzl writes about this in his diary, quote from Herzl, The Reverend William Heckler, chaplain of the English embassy here, came to see me, a sympathetic and sensitive man with the long gray beard of a prophet. He had waxed eloquent about my solution, one he had foretold two years ago, for he had calculated in accordance with a prophecy dating from 637 in Omar's reign that after the lapse of 42 prophetical months, that is, 1,260 years, Palestine would be restored to the Jews. This gives us 1897-1898. When he read my book, he hurried at once to Ambassador Manson and told him, the Fordane's movement is here. Heckler declares my movement, Herzl says, to be a biblical one, even though I go about it secularly. Isn't this funny? People think that the Zionists are some kind of fulfillment of Jewish aspirations, of um, messianic aspirations to return to the Holy Land, as their national anthem indicates, as well as their declaration of independence, that Zionism is what the Jews were looking forward to for 2,000 years, but it's not. Herzl is approached by a Christian evangelical 
saying that the time has come for the Jews to return to the Holy Land. He has all these prophecies that exactly in this year this is supposed to happen, and that's when Herzl uh, printed his book. And Herzl says, well, you know what? It's very nice, very interesting. He's a great guy, uh, this Reverend Heckler, but he thinks this is a religious thing. I do it completely secularly. This has this Zionist movement that the Jews are making have n- has nothing to do with any religion whatsoever. Anyway, Heckler himself also repeated the prophecy of Yechezkel as preached by the Christians and Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah, it is funny. Netanyahu preaches a prophecy. Herzl himself said, we have nothing to do with prophecies or religion. And the prophecy that Netanyahu quotes is invented by evangelical Christians. Anyway, Heckler also created a new concept that uh, what the religious Zionists among the Jews call Aschalta de Geula, that the state of Israel is the beginning of the redemption. This also is not a Jewish idea. It was originally stated by the Christians. Reverend, he- Reverend Heckler said, quote, We are now entering, thanks to the Zionist movement, into Israel's messianic age. Thus, it is now a matter these days of opening of the gates of their homeland and of sustaining them in their work of clearing the land and irrigating it and bringing water to it. All of this, dear colleague, is messianic work. All of this, the Holy Spirit announces. But first, the dry bones must come to life and draw together. By the way, the Holy Spirit that he's referring to is part of the Christian Trinity. Now, when Herzl printed his book, The Jewish State, World Jewry was mostly unimpressed. The religious, by and large, were opposed to the whole idea of a Jewish state, and most secular Jews also rejected it. Many argued correctly that Zionism would increase anti-Semitism. The non-Jewish nations were even less impressed, but Heckler, who was highly influential and incredibly well-connected, worked tirelessly to help Herzl bring the Christian Messiah. It was through Heckler that Herzl was able to meet the most powerful political leaders of Germany and England to lobby for Zionism, including the Grand Duke of Baden, who was greatly influenced by his tutor Heckler's religious views. And through the connections of the Grand Duke, the Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. The highly respected Heckler would always make sure to put in a good word for Herzl with all of his contacts. Herzl wrote about Heckler that, quote, of all the people who have been drawn to me by the movement of Zionism, the Reverend Heckler is the finest. Now, I don't know about the finest, but of Herzl's close followers, uh, the Reverend was definitely the most religious. Compare him, for example, to Max Nordau, Herzl's lieutenant, who on his deathbed exclaims, quote, this is the end, the definite end, for I do not believe in the immortality of the soul, end quote. Besides granting Herzl access to powerful state leaders, Heckler also did his own lobbying for Zionism among the high-ranking state leaders that he knew. And because of the evangelicals, who are, who are Protestants, they're not Catholics, the United States, which was established mostly by Puritans, and England uh, are Israel's strongest allies because they're the evangelical countries. They're not like the other Christians that are Catholics, um, Greece, Italy. That's a completely different religion for all practical purposes.
America, by and large, has always supported Zionism. President John Quincy Adams said that he would like it if the Jews were again an independent nation in Judea, restored to an independent government and no longer persecuted. Abraham Lincoln said to the Canadian Christian Zionist Henry Monk, quote, restoring the Jews to their homeland is a noble dream shared by many Americans. This is, of course, why Britain issued the Balfour Declaration. Lord Balfour himself was a devout Christian, also an anti-Semite, and at the same time, a devout Christian and a Zionist. He wrote a book on Christian theology. It was called The Foundations of Belief. He had a strong religious interest in settling the Jews in Palestine. And when he met Zionist Chaim Weizmann, who lobbied him to support a Jewish homeland in Palestine, Balfour was impressed with what he saw as, quote, Jewish patriotism and the Jews, quote, love of their country as represented by Weizmann. Especially impressive was the fact that Weizmann was against obtaining any territory except Palestine, which of course coincided perfectly with Balfour's Christian beliefs. Quote, Their love for their country refused to be satisfied by the Uganda scheme. It was Weizmann's absolute refusal even to look at it, which impressed me, said Lord Balfour. Of course, as we all know, the only Jewish member of the cabinet in those days, Edwin Montague, was against the Balfour Declaration because he said Jews are not a nationality and Zionism is anti-Semitism. English Jews should remain in England if that's what they want. American Jews should remain in America and Jews should be wherever they want. What kind of thing is this, that you're going to create a homeland for the Jews? You want to create a homeland for the Zionists? That's one thing if that's what they want. But the Jews are a multinational religious group. It has nothing to do with a nation coming to find a land, nothing at all. He said it would actually increase anti-Semitism, which it did, because now people look at the Jews as less American or less British than the other citizens of those countries. And the Zionists say so themselves. And Netanyahu writes in his book, Among the Family of Nations, it's called, that what France is to the French and Japan is to the Japanese, Israel is to the Jews. He didn't say Israel is to the Israelis. This means that if you have a Jew in France, a French Jew and a French non-Jew, a French Gentile. So what France is to the French Gentile, Israel is to the French Jew. That's a dual loyalty trope. And Netanyahu used this, if you want to know what the context is, to explain why anti-Zionism must be anti-Semitism. Because just like if you're against the existence of the country of France, you can't say, I'm, a, I'm for the existence of French people, but against France, so too, because one is dependent on the other, so too, you cannot say, I'm against the existence of Israel, but for the existence of the Jewish people. Because without Israel, the Jews are in the same situation as France, French without France. But it's not true. The Israelis' country is Israel. The French country is French, France. America is my country, not Israel. Zionism is anti-Semitic. That's what Edwin Montague said. But the Christians, and Lord Balfour was an anti-Semite. He didn't care. They didn't care, of course. A lot of these people wanted the Jews to be converted or killed, and that was the whole purpose of Zionism. Until the Zionists brainwashed the Jews and indoctrinated them that Israel protects their interests somehow, which is, of course, nonsense. Uh, Jews understood that Zionism is anti-Semitism. And never mind the religious Jews that said, we're not a nation at all. We're, we're in exile and we're a religious community. And the end of the story we all know. After centuries of preaching and planning, the early 20th century finally provided the Jewish cooperation needed 
for the Christian Zionists to fulfill their desire to see the Jews restored in Palestine, which would represent the Aschalta de Gula, the beginning of redemption according to Protestant restorationist Christianity. Benjamin Netanyahu, in his speech at Auschwitz, in effect described the state of Israel's creation as a fulfillment of the Christian restorationist messianic prophecy, which is to be followed by the coming of the Messiah and, according to most evangelicals, the conversion of the Jewish people to Christianity. One may be tempted to defend Netanyahu's evangelical preaching by saying that he really doesn't believe what he was saying. In fact, from Netanyahu's lack of religious observance of any kind, it's clear that he doesn't believe in the truth of the Bible at all and merely said it to ingratiate himself with those ardent Zionist supporters, the evangelical Christians. In any case, although the Jews did not take much notice of Netanyahu's sermon, undoubtedly because they're not familiar with the fact that it's taken from another religion, the Christians themselves were celebrating the Prime Minister of Israel's recognition of the fulfillment of their messianic prophecies. The Christian Broadcasting Network, which was founded by none other than Pat Robertson, Reported on February 3rd, 2010. Quote, Headline, Netanyahu, Ezekiel 37 fulfilled in Israel. Speaking on the 65th anniversary of the liberation of the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz in Poland last week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu proclaimed the fulfillment of the prophet Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Quote, the Jewish people rose from ashes and destruction from a terrible pain that can never be healed, Netanyahu said at the ceremony. Armed with the Jewish spirit, the spirit of man and the vision of the prophets, we sprouted new branches and grew deep roots. Dry bones became covered with flesh, a spirit filled them, and they lived and stood on their own feet, as Ezekiel prophesied, end quote, from Benjamin Netanyahu. In, in case anyone thinks to question the authoritativeness of Netanyahu's declaration, the Christian Broadcasting Network makes sure to inform us of Netanyahu's qualifications. Quote, from his youth, Netanyahu has been a student of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, which records the history of Israel and his people, end quote. These Christians also did not miss the fact that Netanyahu's biblical exegesis means that he is not the complete heretic that he seems to be. Another Christian news site reports, quote, The leader of a Messianic Jewish ministry is pleased that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu recently proclaimed the fulfillment of the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 37, speaking on the recent 65th anniversary of the liberation of the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz in Poland, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu proclaimed the fulfillment of the prophet Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Jan Markel, founder and director of Olive Tree Ministries, comments that Netanyahu's statement helps debunk the idea that modern Israel is just a secular country with no connection to ancient biblical prophecy. There's a degree of spirituality in Israel, Recently, with this Benjamin Netanyahu saying that Ezekiel 37 is now fulfilled, she notes, that was Jan Markel, quote, so I'm encouraged when the top leader of the nation of Israel comes out and stands up for the Bible. This is absolutely tremendously good news, end quote. Well, it's good news for Jan Markel in the Messianic ministry, certainly, but one would wish that Netanyahu would find a little Jewish spirituality. You hear this? The Christian missionaries are saying what a wonderful thing that you see from Netanyahu's quote of Christian evangelical biblical interpretation that, no, it's not true that Israel is a secular country. 
They are spiritual, they are religious, and they are a fulfillment of the Christian evangelical interpretation of the Bible. And if you don't believe that, just ask Benjamin Netanyahu.